Yardley Love had aspirations of going to law school. George was six foot one, two hundred and ten pounds. Yardley Love was five foot four, one hundred and twenty pounds. George Hughley and those who represent him and those around him excused his actions both internally and externally. Welcome back to Parallel Justice, the podcast that dives into the crimes and cases that have dominated the national headlines through exclusive interviews with the very attorneys who fought the cases. Some of the discussion you hear today may be controversial. However, we know that silence, especially on tough issues, only enables and encourages wrongdoers. It's our goal to bring these issues to light so that we may have meaningful discourse around them. The views expressed in this podcast are those of our guests, who are experts in these areas. Their opinions are invaluable, however, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. The topics we discuss may be disturbing, and they are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering, and we encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. I'm Renee Williams, Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime, and your guide through this conversation. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. I'm your host, Renee Williams, Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime. And I have a newcomer to Parallel Justice with me today, Kevin Biniazin out of Virginia. And I'm going to let him introduce himself before we get into this case. Kevin? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, again, Kevin Biniazin. I'm in Virginia. We've got offices at Bright Biniazin, which is our law firm in Virginia Beach, Richmond, um, and handle all cases all over the state, all over the country, really, representing a lot of survivors of sexual abuse and of, of crime in the civil context. And so today we're going to talk about a very specific case that's been in the news lately, and it's it's the rare case where a huge verdict was reached against an individual. But before we get into all of that, I want to focus on the victim here in her life because she's she's really got an intriguing story. What can you tell us about your client and your client's family here? Yardley Love had aspirations of going to law school, um, which for me as a lawyer is the thing that always stuck out to me uh, whenever I thought about her and what her future would look like. Um, it, it was, you get in these types of cases and you meet families and you get to know clients and um, everyone is different. Everybody's got a different relationship with mothers and sisters and brothers and friends. Um, and this is, this case is no different than that. It, and uh, it, it, the bond that Yardley had with her six, with her sister, Lexi and her mother, Sharon, um, was as close as I've ever observed, either as a lawyer or in real life. And, um, you know, it's still, uh, the wounds are, are raw, obviously, and will be forever. Um, but Yardley Love was a bright young girl. Her, uh, her doctor, who served as the team doctor at the University of Virginia, where she played lacrosse, um, described her at trial as being able to run like the wind. Um, and she was fast and that's what everyone knew her as, but she was a teammate that everyone loved to play with. Yardley played four years there. She was set to graduate 
uh, just a, a couple weeks um, later uh, from the night that her life was taken from her. So let's talk about that. You have this, by all accounts, outstanding young woman who is a senior at UVA playing lacrosse. What happened to her? It, it depends on where, at what point of the story or what point in time that you want to start. It's hard to tell the story of what happened to Yardley Love without talking about what happened in the year or two years before May 2nd of 2010. Um, but on May 2nd, 2010, just before midnight, um, her ex-boyfriend kicked a hole through her apartment bedroom door, um, snuck in and, and as a criminal jury has found, murdered her. And as our jury found, um, acted with willful and wanton disregard for her life and recklessness and did commit her crime, commit her murder. Now, you said it's impossible to talk about her story without talking about the two years preceding that. What was happening in those two years? Yardley and um, George began dating about their sophomore year of of college. They were both um, set to graduate the same year. Both entered college as UVA lacrosse players in the fall of 2006. And uh, everyone that you could ask who knew the two of them would describe their relationship as on and on again, off again, or on and off. You didn't really know whether they were together or not together, but it was this circle of friend group that was this lacrosse team and, and this university that either kept them together or, you know, their uh, infatuation or, or feelings towards each other did the same. But um, in you know, George Hughley's past uh, was riddled with things that didn't really come up at trial, not, e- not even in the criminal case and even some things not in our civil case in terms of um, problems with intoxication, in terms of acting out while drunk, um, having been arrested um, down in other parts of Virginia while intoxicated in college. But it really began to culminate in the spring of 2009, um, again, during one of these times that they were on again, off again, unknown, Yardley had walked home with a friend of hers, who was also a friend of George's, who was also a UVA lacrosse player. And it, that news spread to George that night. Um, and George, either having been told or having thought that Yardley had hooked up or been with somebody else, um, stormed over to this other UVA lacrosse player's house, jumped on him in bed while he was still asleep and beat the living hell out of him. And the next thing he knew, he woke up with black eyes and lumps all over his head. Um, And his doctors at the University of Virginia were telling him that he needed to go get a CT scan to make sure that he didn't have a brain bleed. Um, And that's something that George did to somebody that was almost his size. And, you know, George was six foot one, 210 pounds. Yardley Love was five foot four, 120 pounds. That sort of led to this time in, in what we now know, looking backwards in Yardley's life, where I think she was strongly 
beginning to ask herself questions about what her future was and whether that future in, included George. And um, from what we know, she made the decision that it didn't. And from what I believe and what we believe, the evidence showed is that he didn't like that. So Yardley makes this decision and we get to the night when George Hughley breaks down her door and kills her. Yeah. He subsequently is arrested. Um, can you give us a brief overview of what happened in the criminal case? Was he convicted? What's going on there? He was charged and tried for first degree murder, second degree murder, grand larceny, and, and some related sort of lesser included offenses, but was ultimately convicted of second degree murder and grand larceny, and I believe sentenced to 23 years. He was convicted, but there's been an appeal. What's going on in the appeal? All of his criminal appeals are done. They have been for several years. What was um, his he, initial appeal on? Uh, I I know he had filed some habeas petitions related to the ineffective assistance of counsel. The you know there was some drama during his criminal trial about um, his one of his attorneys not being able to be present at trial because she had some sort some sort of an illness. And then there are there were some critiques after the fact about certain strategies that they took at trial as well. And I think um, that was the basis for some of his habeas petitions. Um, candidly, I didn't I didn't look too closely in terms of the appellate process within the criminal procedure by the time that I was asked to come in and help this family and to try this case that had sort of worked itself out. And so um, I certainly made myself familiar with the evidence that came in at trial at the criminal level and in the findings that the jury made because all of those became relevant um, in a lot of pretrial motions and issues and arguments that we had to make during the civil case on behalf of the Love family. But he, essentially he swung and missed on, on appeal several times um, and struck out on that issue by the time I got involved. So let's talk about your involvement. And I know that, that you came in kind of late in the game. So there might be some questions that we would normally ask that you don't know what the reasoning is. But um, mm -hmm. as I kind of teased before, mm -hmm. this is one of the first times that we've seen a suit proceed against an individual. Um, so, well, let's just start with how did you get involved at all? And when did you get involved? Sure. So I, um, I attended my first hearing uh, in this matter in February of 2022, and the trial was in April of 2022. And so um, I was asked if maybe a month or so before that hearing um, to get involved. It, it, it had become, I guess, apparent to the lawyers that were handling the case that this case was going to be tried. Um, it was going to be tried in the city of Charlottesville in Virginia, which is our backyard. And um, they had asked me to come in and try the case with a, a great lawyer from Maryland. His name is Paul Beckman. Um, and the firm in Virginia that was working with Paul Beckman, led by Irv Kanner, was Kanner, Grana, Buckner, Bucci. And so it, we sort of came together in January, February, and, and decided sort of how we were going to team and, and work together to best represent this family. And, and part of that was 
me going to trial and beginning to handle a lot of the arguments in front of the court as we led up to and ultimately tried the case in April. Now, do you have any insight as to what happened in the case against UVA and the coaches? I don't have granular insight. I do know that there was there were there were claims brought um, in I believe 2012. A, a lawsuit was filed that included the University of Virginia and other individuals at the University of Virginia um, for their potential liability or responsibility for the death. Um, you know, I think some of the questions that become relevant when you hear that is, you know, where did this occur? It did happen on off-campus housing, private apartment complex where Yardley was living at the time. You know, there were beliefs and speculations, I think, during the criminal trial about who knew what when in terms of uh, leadership at the University of Virginia and coaches about George, George's tendencies to be aggressive or, or um, threatening to other people or even to Yardley specifically. And do those types of inf- facts lead to some liability on behalf of the university or the individuals there? You know, my understanding, again, not having been there myself through that process as one of the lawyers, but my understanding is that the, the factual evidence and findings didn't come through as expected or maybe as they had um, thought that they may be present when they filed the case against the University of Virginia. And then ultimately, the claims against those individuals and the University of Virginia were what is technically called in, in Virginia is called a non-suit which is essentially dismissing the claims against those individuals. You do have an opportunity in Virginia when you non-suit cases to bring those cases back under a certain period of time, but that time has now expired. And so this is not meant to sound victim blaming at all, but to explain some things yardly, like so many young women in her situation did not reported up to UVA um, and, and didn't call the police. She wanted to handle it on her own. So there was there just the decision that there were no warnings? I think the, whether it was warnings specifically to Yardley or warnings more generally related to George, I think the finding, because I think there are arguments that either of them could have been um, legally significant. I, I think both were found to be insufficient. What was George's defense in the civil? What was it in the criminal case? Was it the same in the civil mm-hmm. case? What defenses he offered to this? Legally different, but factually similar is what I'll say. In in the criminal case, the the thrust of it was to essentially try and argue down to some sort of act of voluntary manslaughter or this act of heat of passion or. Um, it, it, the amount of intoxication that he had was so significant that he acted emotionally and committed this, but he never had the intent or the malice or the premeditation to have committed a first or a second degree murder. Okay. In Virginia, malice is a required finding for second degree murder. Um, premeditation is sort of the finding to elevate it to a first degree murder, which is that you intended the actual murder, not necessarily that you acted with malice towards the individual and caused their death. The, it, it became, you know, 
you know this, Renee, because you're in our Much world. different standard, yes, in the civil uh, case. And and uh, I'll say, people see the number on the verdict, which is, I think, an amazing thing because it spoke so much about who Yardley was. And, and that's really what I asked the jury to do with their verdict in closing argument. But uh, it was never about the money and, and frankly will never be about the money. The thing that was so important to me or the fact or the finding or the issue that was so important to me, and I think the family would echo this, was that for 12 years to the day of this murder, George Hughley and those who represent him and those around him excused his actions both internally and externally as having been an adolescent-aged individual who got too drunk and didn't know what he was doing and accidentally caused the death of Yardley Love. And frankly, that is not true in my mind. When I was in, got, was getting involved and sort of learned and became aware of this defense, which effectively in both, both cases was that the death was an accident, that while there may have been a struggle between Yardley and George in her bedroom that night, um, the, the death that what ultimately killed Yardley Love was an accidental fall that he had fallen upon her and had fallen upon her with such force that it caused uh, damage to her brain and ultimately killed her. And the claim that that was accidental was so bogus and so frustrating and, and that I, I know that it, it just, it's like a gut punch to the family after 12 years to then sit in a courtroom in front of jurors after this man's been committed of second degree murder and claim that it was accidental. And, and the issue, so really when we got to the civil case, um, there were two primary issues. Number one, what was the life of Yardley Love worth to her family, to her mother and to her sister? Um, quote unquote, compensatory damages. And number two, were the actions of George Hughley so willful and wanton so as to cause or to, to warrant a finding of punitive damages? That's, that's what the primary defense was, that he was so drunk that he stumbled and fell and he fell on top of her the jury said that's wrong and that was the most important finding so the number you mentioned was 15 million for a verdict um and usually we deal with compensatory versus punitive so how did that number break down it was entirely a compensatory damages amount so that 15 million was all compensatory damages the jury found that his actions were so willful, wanton, or reckless to justify punitive damages. In other words, they had a finding of willful and wanton conduct, which directly contradicted and was sort of the 
the closing of the door on this claim of accidental death, right, which was so important to us. Um, but the jury in Virginia, they, after a finding of punitive jam damages, the jury then gets to elect whether or not they want to um, award or allow any additional money to be provided to the family for punitive damages. And um, the, and they elected in this case to award zero. And I think from the outside looking in, some people think, how could that be? Or is that right? Or is that fair? Um, and from the inside looking out, I can tell you that that is just about exactly what we had hoped for. And the reason being is that in Virginia, we have a statutory cap on punitive damages. Um, we, and what that means, I guess, for the audience is if you, you, somebody could award a, 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 an individual $100 million in punitive damages and say what they did is so bad that they should receive $100 million for what happened. Um, but the cap in Virginia is $350,000. And so even if they decided 1 million, 5 million, 20 million, it would have all been reduced to $350,000. So a great fear, um, and that's a fear, maybe a strong word, but an honest word, a, a strong fear of mine and our legal team and something that we spent a lot of time thinking and discussing and strategizing about is how do how do we ensure that this verdict reflects the loss of life of Yardley Love without receiving an, a judgment in punitive damages that is in excess of $350,000 because that effectively becomes meaningless. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, dumb luck or good strategy, it happened. But you got the recognition that punitive damages were called for which was crucial. That's right. That's right. So how the family, it's not about the money, but how do you go about collecting or are you going to, or are you just going to let the judgment stand? We have every intention to go about collecting the judgment. There are circumstances and, and sort of strategies that have come into play in terms of how do we do that? for 10 years in civil litigation, there's essentially been this closed door as to um, what assets were, was George Hughley entitled to receive at the time that he committed this crime? What assets did he have? The discovery in our case never really reached that issue. How wealthy is he? How wealthy is his family? Did he have a will? Did he have a trust? You know, what's going to happen to him when he comes out? So the answer to that is that we have every intention to enforce the judgment. And I believe the family, you know, in terms of our conversations and conversations before and after trial, that is the intention. So we never get to how much of that this. we will ever see is a complete. Yeah. And how much more work is that? Not, not that we're afraid of hard work, but how, how many more months, years is this going to drag out for this family before things are done. It could be, it could be years. It could be decades, frankly. I mean, it, there are so many iterations of how this could go. You know, there could be an attempt to file bankruptcy. 
And if he files bankruptcy, then there's litigation that takes place in the bankruptcy court where a finding of malicious or willful conduct becomes very important because that's an exception to the bankruptcy code. It could be that there is no bankruptcy filing and it is effectively just a garnishment of wages or a discovery of assets that he was entitled to and a clawback of those things that have been tried to be pushed away from him since he's been incarcerated, if that has been, that, that has occurred. And so it has the potential to essentially continue in litigation for years. It does. And it's more work, but like you said, I mean, that's sort of what we sign up for, right? Yeah. Now I want to go back to Yardley and something you said earlier. Um, her family's done some amazing work in the aftermath of this, mm-hmm. including setting up the One Love Foundation. Can we talk mm-hmm. about that? What do they do? The One Love Foundation is essentially mission-driven to educate young adults, um, essentially high school age to college age, 16 to 24, roughly, about the existence of domestic violence within relationships um, signs and and uh, things to be on the lookout, red flags to be aware of, so that they can educate, inform not only individuals who may be in those relationships themselves, but friends and family members who may be witnessing those signs of of, of a domestic violence or a, an abusive relationship from the outside looking in. It's an amazing group. They're all over the place, all over the country all over the world. I mean, not all over the world, but they are in other countries at this point too. And um, they really are, they turned something that could have been so terrible and they sort of came together and tried to make the best of it. Well, that is about all the time we have for today. But as always, Kevin, I want to give you a chance to give our listeners any last thoughts, advice, words of wisdom, or things you want them to think about and take away from this podcast. Sure. Um, nice, broad, and general for me. Just how I like my questions. Um, the, you know, I think I'll be honest and bring it back to the circumstances that led to this horrible crime and and Yardley's death over twelve years ago. Which is, you know, I, when pursuing the case, I th- sort of thought a lot about my own life in college and. And even in as a young adult in the different relationships that I had observed and whether I asked enough questions about what was happening behind closed doors and whether the people were safe in those relationships and um, representing this family, uh, you know, I, the closing argument was 12 years to the day of the day that George Hughley kicked a hole and broke into Yardley's room. And I think the gravity of that moment leading up to it and and standing in front of those jurors and telling them that 12 years ago, she was less than a mile down the road with her friends. And what I didn't say to the jury is that those were friends who cared deeply about her, but didn't know enough to help her. And um, know enough to stop him. Mm-hmm. And the message that I would share, if I could share one, is um, learn more about it. 
go see the One Love Foundation. Um, they've got materials online. Um, educate yourself because you could be um, in a tremendous amount of help to somebody that's close to you that's in your life. And the more we know, the more we can help. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you have any questions about your rights after listening to the show, please visit us at victimsofcrime.org. Our guest's information is also always available in the show notes. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association. More information about both organizations is available at victimsofcrime.org and victimbar.org. Thank you, and please join us again next week.